Welcome. Uh, of course, we're very grateful with you for coming to our event. We have a fantastic duo of academicians here. Uh, Mr. Funk from Chile and Mr. Hector Chamis from Washington. Okay. Let us say that uh, history does enjoy irony. And we're certainly on, in an ironic moment. Across the world, populist movements are on the rise. Great Britain voted to exit the European Union because of anti-elite sentiment. And popular parties are surging in France, the Netherlands, Germany, Scandinavia, and elsewhere. And do I even need to mention Donald Trump? But there is the irony. Even as those bulwarks of traditional technocratic government, like the Nordic state and the Netherlands, move towards a more populist model in Latin America, good government rule is on the rise. Populism is actually in decline in Latin America at a time when it is rising elsewhere. This is truly startling. The diversus um, populism is not limited to one Latin American country. It's occurring across the region. Consider recent events. Bolivians rejected a referendum that would have extended the rule of populist uh, Evo Morales. In Peru, the daughter of his grace dictator, Alberto Fujimori, was defeated in the presidential election by an economist. In Argentina, after more than a decade of uh, ruinous Peronist rule, a center-right reformer is in charge. And in Brazil, the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff has brought a constitutional lawyer to the presidency. And even in Venezuela's Maduro might be teetering on the edge. Clearly, change is afoot. And I'm hopeful that a new wave of truly democratic governance is sweeping the region. And this may also be a good time for the United States finally to begin re-engaging with Latin America, which, is, which it has ignored for too long. To discuss this topic, we have a superb duo of professors, uh, Dr. Robert, Roberto Funk, Professor of Political Science at the Institute for Public Affairs of the University of Chile. And we're also joined by our old friend, colleague, 
a brother of these journeys, <laughs> uh, Dr. Hector Shamis, professor at Georgetown University. I um, want to express our thanks to Ms. Rachel Cox, the uh, Director of Public Events here at Hudson, and to Sylvia Werrell, the Center's Executive Assistant. And without any further ado, Roberto. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, also, it's great to be here. It's great to be in Washington. And it's great to be away from the smog of Santiago in, in winter. Although, <laughs> maybe you overdid it. <laughs> um, let me see if I can. Great. So I'm going to, following up on what the ambassador said, very briefly provide a bit of uh, a bit of data. I'll try not to. I'll try to go quickly so we have some time to for a discussion and try not to sort of bore you with too many with too many numbers. I'm a bit less optimistic than the ambassador regarding the sort of the the, the shift away from populism in Latin America. Everything he said, of course, is true. Um, but certainly, from a Chilean perspective, if you look at what's going on, uh, maybe that taints my taints my optimism somewhat. It could be could be the smog. But uh, historically, as you know, we've, tend we've tended to look at Latin America both from, from North America and, from, and in Latin America with, with a certain, uh, what we call in political science, cleavages, right? These sort of, these, these dichotomies, the left to right, the north to south, the rich to poor, upper class, lower class, uh, public-private, state-market, state right? Uh, and I get the sense that in Latin America, and also in the cases in Europe that the ambassador mentioned, those cleavages are um, becoming less relevant and are being replaced with a new cleavage. So we've thrown those out, and the question is, what is that going to be? What are those cleavages going to be replaced with? Left-right doesn't make any, any that much sense anymore in Latin America, right? I mean. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, in the ambassador's introduction, he mentioned, he didn't mention the left, he mentioned populism, because it's, it's, it's not really uh, the same kind of thing that it was uh, the, what we knew during the Cold War. So what's this going to be replaced with? And I think there's a few indicators if you look at both what's happening in Europe and what's happening in Latin America, and if you look at the if you look at the numbers. So as I was saying, you know, historically, and certainly in the last you know, from about 1998 to about 2010, everybody was talking about the rise of the new left. Um, and there was the good left and the bad left. Castaneda talked about the good left and the bad left, uh, which wasn't the best, maybe the best way of, of looking at it, but it was one way of looking at it. And then after 2010, we started getting Piñera, we started getting Santos in Colombia, we started getting uh, some, some uh, parties of, of the right. And that's continued, as Ambassador mentioned, in Argentina, in uh, Peru. Uh, we'll see what happens in Brazil. So where, where I perhaps differ from the Ambassador is the idea that somehow uh, 
people are voting in favor or, or people are rejecting populism. I'm not sure that that's happening. I think that what's happening is that in the late 1990s and early 2000s, people were voting for these leftist populist parties because they were rejecting what was before, which was the sort of market reform. Uh, they were beginning to be disappointed with, with the, the fruits of the democratization process uh, and basically voting against the status quo and voting against, to some degree, institutions. And then with the next wave, when people started voting for the right, what they were doing was voting against the status quo, which was the left. Um, so I think what we're really seeing to some degree, both in Latin America and in Europe, is uh, anger. And The Economist devoted in the last, I think the last week or the week before, a lot of ink to, to the idea that we're talking now about the politics of anger. But it's also, and this is interesting for Latin America, it's an angry middle class. And that's something new in Latin America. And that's why we don't get... This, the left-right thing doesn't make sense anymore because maybe 30 years ago, you know, in the 1960s, it was an angry peasant class or an angry workers class, and now it's an angry middle class. So let's look at some numbers. Well, according to the World Bank, if you look at the last 20, this only takes us to 2010, so that would be, what, 50, over 50 years, the group in Latin America that increased the most was the middle class. Now, how does the World Bank define the middle class? They say people that make between... Let's say they're between ten and fifty dollars a day. Middle class is a notorious. I think sociologists base their careers on trying to define what the middle class is, um, but there, there's one definition. Okay, and 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 certainly this is. It's pretty clear when you see that kind of increase that that's going to cause some sort of shift, political, social shift in in the region. Um, this is interesting because that's based on income. Then if you ask Latin Americans, what do you consider yourself? Do you consider yourself wealthy, poor, or middle class? Uh, that's also increased. That's a breakdown by country. And the last line there is the Latin American average, which is almost 40%. So if you think of what, certainly what our, say, North American uh, image or... Um, stereotype might be of Latin America, it's not middle class, right? And yet almost half of Latin Americans consider themselves to be middle class. I think that's important because what that does is, and I think this is the crux of, of my argument, is it creates expectation. Um, one of the things that's happened, and it goes arm in arm with middle class, is increased access to higher education. If you compare three regions in Europe, Access to higher education over a four or five year period basically stayed the same. In, in, in the United States, it increased a little bit. In Latin America, it's increased quite a bit. And in Chile, in particular, it's increased a lot. This is important because, as you know, in Chile, much of the political reform that's going on is, starts from a series of demands that were made by university students in 2011 forward. Uh, so the access, the increased access to education in Chile has translated into, uh, or is somehow a vehicle for, on the one hand, more political demands, and on the other hand, more expectation, right? If you go to university, you expect to get a job, and you expect, um, in the case of Chile, to pay off your student loans, or the United States, for that matter. But that, it's not a joke, because that's, again, one of the cruxes of this, of this thing is, it's great to go to university, it's not great if you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life. 
it's only great to university if that has some sort of value added in what you're doing. This is a GDP growth, um, basically showing how, and obviously that big dip is the, is the crisis, right, in 2008, 2009, but what you see there is how Europe and Latin America have begun to come together in terms of GDP. Another little nugget that exp helps explain things is if you look at inequality in Latin America over the last, what's about 10 years, 15 years, basically flat. It's gone down a little bit in, in Latin America. Uh, in the United States, the red line below is the United States, absolutely flatlined. That also explains what's happening here, right? And it explains what's happening in Latin America. In, in Latin America, we've been much more successful at reducing poverty than reducing inequality. That's why we have this increased middle class, but we have not reduced inequality. That has an impact on expectations. Uh, here we start to see some signs of trouble, right? How happy are Latin Americans or different regions with democracy? And Latin America, even less than Africa, has confidence in democracy. 37% compared to 70% in Asia, 59% in Europe. Okay. So that's a sign of some, some worry. If you look at presidential approval ratings, there's a lot of numbers here, you can't see them. But what I'll do here is show you, this is from 2002, 2015, and what, and what the, the numbers that are circled there are uh, sort of the peaks of presidential approval in all these countries in Latin America. And after that peak, it starts going down. So what you see is low approval for democracy, lowering uh, presidential approval across the board with two notable exceptions in 2015, which are Bolivia and the uh, Dominican Republic. But everywhere else, presidential approval has, started, has, has gone down over the last five or 10 years consistently. And in Chile, that number there for Chile says 49%. The last poll came out on Monday. President Bachelet has 22% approval. We're, we're heading towards the uh, Peruvianization of presidential approval in You wish. <laughs> you wish, given stability in Peru. The, the stability. Stability. Yeah, yeah. No, but I'm talking about presidential yeah, approval. Yeah. Uh, here I'm going to show you some bad news and then I'm going to show you some good news. Um, this is trusted institutions in Latin America. Versus, wait in, uh, in Latin America, yeah. Every, from 95 to 2015, over 20 years, all the major political institutions, trust goes down. Okay? That's clearly a problem. We know what the relationship is between trust and political stability and support for democracy and so on. What institutions start to go up? If you add the private sector, slight increase, and banks, quite a bit of increase. So trust in political institutions goes down. And, when this, and from a Chilean perspective, this is interesting because what's happened over the last five or ten years, and the Bachelet government has responded to this, is the idea that the system, this proves that the system uh, has collapsed. This proves that people are unhappy with neoliberalism, unhappily, unhappy with market reform, and so on. What you see, and this is aggregate for Latin America, is that it's not quite so clear. Right? The fact that Bachelet is unpopular, or any other president is unpopular, or that political parties or Congress are unpopular, doesn't necessarily mean that if you look, if you add in what trust in certain institutions, market institutions are, doesn't, you, you get a sense that it's not quite as black and white. Now, but it's clear that there's 
anger. Uh, again, if you're middle class, and this is, this is basic modernization theory from the 1950s, which has been so discredited, but right, the idea is if you're middle class, you have a greater stake in, in the economy, a greater stake in society, and therefore you're going to support democracy more because you will. Um, and you're going to be really angry when there's corruption. Right? Because you get a sense that that corruption is stealing from you. These two gentlemen here are two politicians in Chile, both of whom, uh, of, of the main party of the right, the UDI, both of whom have been uh, uh, accused of, of corruption and are under some degree of house arrest. Uh, this is across the board in Chile. I can, we can talk about that later in the discussion as to why this is going on. It seems like a bad thing. I think it's not a bad thing. We've had... There's anger, and people have taken to the streets. Chile is, you know, a clear example. But Brazil, we've had massive demonstrations. Argentina has always had demonstrations, but it doesn't really seem to matter very much. Uh, but there is a sense that, and this is noteworthy in, in a region where historically kind of social movements have been have been uh, oppressed to some degree. There is a sense that people are really angry and taking to the streets to demand change. Uh, that's bad in a way because it means that we, we, we're not really. Um, we, when people take to the streets, is because the is because the ch political channels for for political demands are not available or not or not being chosen for different reasons. So that's bad. On the other hand, there's some positive signs there too, which we can t talk about. So what's the bad news? The bad news is that clearly, in a lot of countries in the region, particularly Chile, there seems to be less stability. There seems to be less stability. You know, we were used to Chile. When I did my PhD, my supervisor said, why are you studying Chile? It's so boring. This was 20 years ago. It's so boring. Uh, you should study Mexico. Mexico is interesting. Well, now, unfortunately, this is like the Chinese curse, right? You should live in interesting times. Unfortunately, we're living in interesting times in Chile. Uh, so there is less stability. Uh, and we know that lack of trust in institutions is related to things like the, the strength of democracy. There is less trust because of corruption. All these things come to light. Um, this kind of instability makes continued reform, market, the deepening of market reforms. In Chile, we, we don't really need the deepening of market reforms. And the rest of the region, we probably do, makes it much more difficult, right? It's just, it's, it's no longer as, um, as perhaps as popular. And all of this, and this is absolutely key, and I think this is really what's going on, also with the changes that the ambassador mentioned, is the end of the, super, of the commodity super cycle. Right? Venezuela, clearly, besides its own internal political problems and, 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 the, and the contradictions of its, of its own system, what supported or what, what uh, hid those contradictions was, was the price of commodities. Well, that's no longer there. The same is true in Brazil. Brazil, the Brazilian the country of the future was only the country of the future as long as it had access to this money. And Chile is also the case. Uh, well, what's the good news? This is, I try to end on a good note. The, the fact that there's corruption, the corruption has come to light, uh, is, can be seen as the fact that people, the corruption case in Chile that have come to light and the corruption cases in Brazil, which, by the way, make Chile, Chile's, I would say Chile's mediocre, even for corruption, in terms of corruption, we're kind of, uh, if you compare us to Brazil. Um, they're not new. That's basically the way the system always worked. 
but they're coming to light. And they're coming to light because there's more transparency, because people have more, uh, there are more demands for information, there's more access to information, there are social, there's social networks, people know more. And that causes more anger, but it also, in the long term, if we, if we survive the next few <laughs> weeks, months, uh, in the long term, uh, will make for better political systems, right? So the, so the electorate, the population, is much more demanding, much more involved than perhaps what we thought some years ago. The second bit of good news is that the numbers show, to some degree, that people are not rejecting the model. They're not rejecting capitalism. In Chile, we've had five, six years of student demonstrations regarding particularly education. No one is saying nationalize all the private universities. What they're saying is, you know, protect us, regulate it. We don't want to go into debt for the rest of our lives. We don't want to study Patagonian tourism because some university thought it would be a good idea to offer a course in Patagonian tourism. So if you look at what they're saying, they look like they're left-wing sort of radicals demanding change. They're actually consumers demanding to be protected from a market that's not well-regulated. That's really what's going on. They don't say it that way. They say, you know, they have a, they have a Che Guevara on the T-shirt. But they're consumers asking to be protected from a market that's not well-regulated. Uh, and if you look at, and, and I think, and this is where the middle-class argument is important. People are not rejecting the model. People want in to the model. People want to be part of the system. They want to have credit cards and, 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 and want to have... The reason that we have a million students in the higher education system in Chile that have gone into debt is because their families are able to go into debt. And their grandparents did not have access to credit. So th that's the middle class, right? That's, that's what's happening. It's not that we've shifted to the left. It's that we've shifted towards having more people being part of the system and wanting to be really act, uh, feel, having a stake in it. This is just one, one example of, of this is a Chilean, uh, this is already quite an old poll from 2012, but it gives you some idea. If you ask Chileans, this work? Yeah. if you ask Chileans what do you need, what's required to get ahead in life, what doesn't, okay. The first, the top answer, and more so in 2012 to 2010, may have gone down a bit, but the top answer is uh, education. It's not state help, it's not public programs, it's education. What's the number two? Work. Uh, number three, personal initiative. These are not the answers of people who are demanding that the country become, you know, Bolivarian. These are people who want to be, uh, I always say this kind of ironically, people on the street in Chile are demanding that Chile become as socialist as the United States. Right? So they want the United States has a huge public education system. That, that's what they want. Uh, they, they don't want Venezuela. They want to be like the United States. Uh, and so, basically, the coming cleavage is not left-right. It's not uh, whatever. It's inclusion. It's between people who feel, and this is true, I think, in Britain and here with Trump and so on, if you look at the people who support Trump, they're people who feel like they've been left out of the new society, of, of globalization. Of, of So it's, it's people who are in versus people who are out. And so public policy, rather than thinking of we need more public whatever, should be thinking about how do you integrate this new middle class? How do you make them feel protected? How do you make them feel part of, of the market system? And how do you convince them that sometimes there is exclusion? I have an argument with my students at the university who say, Marx, grades, you call them grades, Canadians call them Marx, grades are uh, 
exclusionary because some, some students will be left out if they don't have good enough grades. And because there's the level of inequality, and this is, there's, there's, there's actually literature on this, right? If you in a country that has a lot of inequality, grades will somehow be a product of that inequality, not necessarily of the student's ability. And there's some truth to that. But, but does that mean that an that a elite university like the one I work in should therefore get rid of any kind of, uh, any kind of admissions, um, uh, admissions um, considerations because, they, because we need to fix that. So, or do you fix the system with early childhood education? Do you throw money at those things so that by the time those students get to university, there's a more level playing field, right? So uh, the question is, how well do you explain ex exclusion and make sure that there is a level playing field? And to finish, there was a, a, a sort of an implicit question in the title of this panel, which was, what's the role for the United States here? And I think that's the role for the United States, right? The United States, for all its, the troubles that it's going through now, uh, its, it's, it's genius to some degree is be, having been able to explain First, to, to, to provide the idea of inclusion, could be more true than, or less true, we could have that argument, but there's the idea of inclusion, and also is good at explaining how and why some people don't make it to the top, right? Uh, the United States, in terms of its foreign policy towards Latin America, it seems to me, has more to offer in that area in terms of providing a model for this new cleavage, which is inclusion-exclusion, than the kinds of old kinds of uh, relationships. We've got, for the most part, we've got trade. Chile has free trade with the United States. That's done. We now need a new kind of relationship with the United States, which is based on, uh, on a social model, not just an economic model. Thank you. Don Hector. In Spanish? Don Hector. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying, in Spanish. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Robert. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Darnblom, my good friend Jaime, for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to be here. Although this is the first time I'm here because uh, whenever I was at Hudson, it was on 15th Street uh, before. Uh, I'm going to try to well reflect on the invitation with the sort of two issues that the invitation contains, you know, changes in Latin America, opportunity for the U.S., address some of the issues Robert was talking about, like abolish the GPA, if there are any students here, that's what's going on in Chile, apparently, <laughs> abolish the GPA, um, and many other places, uh, and then try to sort of have a, perhaps a forward-looking view on what's going on in Latin America and in the hemisphere as a whole. I have some notes here. I don't have a transparency. I don't have a PowerPoint. But if I had one, it would be something like this. Just try to imagine this. It would be the old and simple two-by-two two, uh, chart. And on one axis, it would be free market capitalism. And on the other axis, it would be liberal democracy. And uh, how those two have combined uh, in Latin America since the transitions of the 80s, last one being Chile in 1989 precisely, 
has been the issue of Latin American political and economic development ever since. And, and with that in mind, I think we could map what has happened in Latin America in terms of trajectories of individual countries, in, in terms of how much uh, open market capitalism they have had and how much liberal democracy they have had over the last three, four decades. Apropos that, I have to say, Robert, the people say that they're unhappy with democracy. Well, obviously, they would say that uh, the younger they are, because that's a question that implicitly uh, makes you think about a non-democracy. Exactly, a non-democracy. Now, if you're under 35 in Latin America today, or in the southern cone, you don't know what is non-democracy. So you are unhappy with the, your government, you're unhappy with politics, not with democracy necessarily. You're unhappy with the, the way the world works. So in a way, that's a healthy response. It's, it's, it's not necessarily the right question. And that's why I never did you know, polls in my life, because I, I don't, I'm not a fan of polls, you can tell. On that note, uh, there is a lot of change going on in Latin America. I don't know if there is a trend, though, in terms of, well, I'm going to uh, sort of avoid using terms like left, right, populism, and all of that, because it confuses us more than anything else. I, I've dropped those terms altogether for the most part. I'm going to say that uh, some people say there is a, cha a change of cycle. Uh, some people have talked about crisis in Latin America. Crisis, crisis is a funny term when, when there is no crisis. Uh, I've talked about regime change myself in, in, in some of my work recently, particularly in some countries. Um, I think Argentina is going through a regime change, not just a, a switch of the pendulum, not just the new political cycle or something like that. We can expand that if you, if you want. But I think that whatever is ending is the result of a booming commodity prices that Latin America hasn't seen ever. Uh, terms of trade, uh, good old prebish, terms of trade of Latin America hadn't been more favorable ever in a large number of countries. And in, in those who have been better than they have been in the last few, the last decade or so, you have to go back 60, 70 years. Say Argentina, it has had better terms of trade during the boom, export boom of the early 20th century, but you have to go back there to, to find it. Countries like Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Colombia never, ever had better terms of trade. There's been a boom uh, in international prices that is the, the critical independent variable here. Uh, critical because it has uh, created many of the phenomena that uh, Robert just addressed. Uh, the growth of the middle class, the expansion of the middle classes, the access to credit, uh, and a variety of other things, including political projects aimed at perpetuation in office, uh, which has been new. In, uh, in Latin America, civil or democratic, by the way, it, 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 civil or civilian or military governments. Military governments, uh, and Juan Linz would have agreed with me, do not, authoritarianism doesn't aim at perpetuation. Authoritarianism is a response uh, at what they see as previous crisis 
uh, an attempt to normalize until the country is ready for democracy again. Let's put it that way. Authoritarianism is temporary. But some of the attempts at perpetration we have seen, uh, the ALBA countries for the most part, uh, have been a, a new political project, financed by extraordinary terms of trade and commodity prices that allow them to build the patron-client networks with which elections were won. And if they weren't won, uh, they were rigged, uh, oftentimes. And that's a, the, the, the phenomenon of the new middle class, 75 million people coming into the middle class, many of them young, and then you have the, the anger having to do with generational issues. Wherever you go in the world, actually, Europe, the U.S., the Middle East, Latin America, uh, you go down in, the, in, the, in age, and uh, with every year you go down, unemployment rate increases. So if you are 25, university grad, uh, and unemployed, which is a pretty large uh, pattern uh, in the world, in Europe, in Latin America, in the U.S., in the Middle East, uh, by the way, uh, what we see is that uh, a recipe for tremendous dissatisfaction, and, and that will show, obviously. Uh, young, the, the youth today is far more educated and informed than their parents and far more unemployed than their parents. That's, that's, a, that's a recipe for instability in and of itself. What's going on, I think, is that, well, Argentina, Brazil, Argentina has changed. Uh, it's sort of a, it's a funny the discussion, you know. Uh, I, I've dared to call my friends at PRO that uh, they are center-left government. I, I've dared to tell them that, and, and some don't like it, some like it very much. <laughs> Apropos your Macri being center-right. Uh, Brazil is a big mess. As we know, Bolivia has had a referendum uh, where the president lost indefinite re-election. Watch out. Uh, Hugo Chavez also lost that referendum, but then they, they modified the uh, indefinite re-election clause in Congress, in the Assemblea Nacional. Uh, yeah, I, I wasn't joking about Peru. I said that nobody talks, or we don't talk enough about Peru. It's been a dramatically important lesson of democratic stability and civic culture, what just happened you know, in the last election. Uh, and there goes Peru with a good amount of uh, political stability and a good amount of uh, successful market capitalism. And an election that was under 0.4% uh, difference uh, that is typically a recipe for disaster, and it didn't happen. Uh, a decent concession on the part of Keiko Fujimori and the new president, uh, our good old friend Pedro Pablo, <laughs> uh, an IMF economist, World Bank economist, and many other places. Uh, there is an election in Ecuador in February. Correa said that he's not going to run, but it's not run, but we'll see if that happens. Uh, there is an, an election in Nicaragua next November. Uh, when you go to all the ballots, printed ballots uh, competing, the candidate is the same, Daniel Ortega. Uh, that, that doesn't look too good. Uh, and, there is, and there is peace in Colombia. Uh, or there, there will be peace in Colombia. Um, so add to that changes in Cuba, uh, which 
may end up in democratic capitalism or may end up on uh, authoritarian capitalism uh, following the Chinese or the one given size more appropriately, the Vietnamese pattern of a Communist Party elite that manages to implement market reforms and introduce capitalism in order not to leave power but to stay in power uh, even stronger. And of course there is Venezuela, uh, the elephant in the room of our hemisphere, which is critical uh, and tragic and extremely dangerous for the region as a whole. There is a massive exodus of women going into Colombia as we speak uh, to buy food. If they can buy the food, otherwise they will be looting supermarkets and stores in Colombia. And uh, and that's a it's a tragedy of epic proportion that I don't think, in general, we haven't come to terms in our debate with that, with some exceptions, and I'll address that in, in a minute. Uh, in that sense, you know. Uh, I certainly have to commend Secretary General Almagro for having put the Venezuela issue as it is on the table, have called things for what they are. That's a dictatorial rule. There is no rule of law. There is a a series of uh, ruptures of the constitutional order, legislature that cannot legislate, a judiciary that is packed with uh, apparatchiks, uh, political prisoners that were that are convicted will manufacture evidence, uh, and a dramatic humanitarian crisis with you know little uh, premature babies dying because uh, incubators do not work, cancer patients dying because there are no drugs for treatment, and so on and so forth, uh, and and I think the the good news is that. Gradually, slowly, but surely, I do think what's going on at the OAS is hopeful, and it's you know the beginning of a return of a principled debate in Latin America and in the region as a whole. Uh, and I'm saying uh, that the case is dramatically important for its humanitarian uh, tragedy and, and and the effects that may have it refugees crisis in neighboring uh, Colombia and neighboring Brazil as well, uh, but also because it's a, it's, it's a way of, uh, uh, it's deception it's, it's on the issues that brought about democracy as a whole in the continent. It's deception to the democratic charter. The democratic charter was written precisely because there were other forms of instability, and it was written after Peru when Fujimori closed down Congress and uh, and established a dictatorial rule, and then the region realized that, well, wait a minute, we used to have breakdowns because the military will come in, but now there are other forms of breakdowns. What do we do? Well, we need to 
uh, write a document that allows us to intervene. Uh, an intervention doesn't mean the Marines, of course, the Venezuelan government talks about intervention <laughs> all the time. Nobody, intervention is the bread and butter of human rights. Without intervention, there is no human rights. <laughs> that is precisely the motivation for UN 1948. That is the, it's intervention. If we had the tools to intervene, to mediate, to, to censor, to, to sanction morally, uh, well, the Holocaust wouldn't have happened or would have happened in a different way. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a less tragic way. Uh, that is the motivation. So, yeah, those are tools for intervention. What's going on in Venezuela is like, you know, all of a sudden is, you know, I, I also agree with this. <clears throat> uh, well, it's not left or right because it doesn't matter. Uh, they can call themselves anything they want. I was once at, uh, at uh, Moises Naim's show and he asked me, said, well, there's gobiernos de izquierda, left-wing governments. And I, uh, on the spot, you know, he called me, Mr. President, and, says, and I said to Moises, well, izquierda dirán ellos. Left, they would call themselves left. Look at poverty, inequality growing, uh, lack of uh, health, lack of uh, food. food. Uh, I mean, what, what kind of, uh, I mean, that, that's not in my book of what I read about, you know, uh, being left. So uh, left, they, they would say left. Uh, and this, all of this, and I couldn't say enough about the importance of coming to terms with Venezuela and intervening in Venezuela, intervening with mediation. Uh, Fernando Enrique Cardoso and Jose Serra went to Montevideo yesterday, and they sat down, none other than Fernando Enrique Cardoso sat down with the Uruguayan president and said, we don't want Venezuela to be presiding Mercosur, and, uh, and that could be the beginning of change, now that Brazil is, is acting on Venezuela. We know very well that without uh, Lula and Dilma, uh, Maduro wouldn't be pro president today, most likely. Uh, uh, and, uh, and apropos, you know, the right and left, that is Fernando Enrique Cardoso, <laughs> another. But since we don't know anymore what's right and left in Latin America, I'll, I'll suspend that. All of this in the context of what the meeting invites us to talk about, which is U.S. and U.S. foreign policy. And... Uh, and when I see what's going on, well, in the world and in the region, I can't help remembering Henry Kissinger's uh, word that he used about uh, the administration and his foreign policy a number of times, ambivalent. He said a couple of times in written form, and, and not long ago with uh, Zachariah on CNN, he said that uh, Obama's foreign policy has a, a, a tactical approach to foreign policy without any clear strategic purpose behind it, and, and it's in that sense ambivalent. Uh, and I think that's very pertinent with regards to the administration's foreign policy in Latin America as well, not just in the Middle East or in, in, in Europe. Because I would say as well, following uh, Kissinger's steps, that uh, uh, that has been the, if you want, the trademark of U.S. foreign policy in Latin America. Very engaged in Cuba to produce change, uh, for the most part in, in, in a way that I agree with. I mean, well, we don't know what's going to work in the future, but we, we do know that what we had so far didn't precisely work. So let's try something. Uh, very engaged in Colombia, extremely engaged. Uh, 
and not much else in terms of engagement on the part of the administration. Uh, and interestingly enough, the arguments that you hear from uh, administration, from top diplomats and, and State Department officials and National Security Council officials is that, well, we can't be seen too involved because it's counterproductive. They say that publicly, they say that in private conversations. Well, why isn't it counterproductive, the level of engagement the administration has had in Cuba or in the Colombian peace plan? Uh, uh, and then, you know, when I sort of contrast the, the two, I can't help remembering uh, Henry Kissinger's words, you know, ambivalence. Uh, and that's, a, that's an opportunity that, uh, opportunities that are lost. Uh, I was at the OAS uh, General Assembly in Santo Domingo a couple of weeks ago. I was there when uh, Secretary of State Kerry spoke, and he gave a marvelous speech uh, with the, you know, covering all four bases. Uh, recall referendum on Venezuela, recall referendum now, uh, freedom of political prisoners, humanitarian aid, uh, and what was the fourth? I don't remember, but okay, he had three bases, not four loaded, not all bases loaded. Well, uh, well, U.S. therefore uh, has a position. He, U.S. seems uh, siding with the, the Secretary General on that. Uh, yet the, that initial session of foreign, minister, foreign ministers is over. Uh, ten minutes later, you see uh, the tweets that the Venezuelan government posted all over of prior meeting between the Secretary of State Kerry and the Venezuelan foreign minister, Delcy Rodriguez. And then, you know, yet again, ambivalence. Uh, after that speech, not that you will not meet, uh, but... Is, is quite a contrast what what you just said moments ago. I think uh, that's an opportunity that may be lost with lives lost and with the tremendous instability and, and, and a big risk for for the rest of Latin America uh, and for the hemisphere and the inter-American system as a whole. If, if nothing else, in terms of that old principle that drove our transitions, which was the principle of human rights, none other than human rights. If, if, if we in Latin America had democratic transitions starting in 79 with Peru and ending in 89 with Chile, and you go through all the countries, Venezuela was the only democratic country in South America at the time, by the way. Uh, have, life has reversed. Uh, it was because of uh, the lesson that we learned in terms of human rights. And in terms of human rights, uh, well, you don't have them if you don't have constitutional democracy, if you don't have separation of powers, you know, checks and balances, and so on, independent judiciaries, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, things are also uh, unstable, perhaps, or uncertain, uh, at least, in the U.S. itself in an election year, in, a, in an unprecedented election year. Uh, an election year that uh, offers risks and opportunities at the same time. Uh, the, the one, uh, aside from the hopes I have in terms of the outcome of that first Tuesday in November, uh, uh, the other hope I have will also give away what hopes I have, which is 
that the U.S. should not have less engagement, should have more. Along the lines of the kind of engagement the U.S. has had all these years in Cuba, producing political change. Uh, whether that will translate into more democracy, well, we hope that, but it's up to the Cubans to, to make it happen, and I agree with that. Uh, the level of engagement it has had and it continues to have in the Colombian peace process, uh, a fundamental uh, landmark uh, in Latin American democracy, if it ends well, but uh, not trying it for sure will not make it end well. And having said this, uh, I think that opportunities are uh, enormous. Uh, we'll see if the U.S. is capable of going and, and pick up on those opportunities uh, to help produce a change. Thank you very much. Muy bien. Muy bien. Uh, we'll now enter into a third part of our event. Uh, we're going to have the, our two main speakers to discuss any points that uh, either of them feel that should be more amply discussed. Go ahead. I have one, one comment regarding um, regarding the ambivalence. Um, I think there is some of that, some of that. Uh, I happen to think there's some, been a bit written about this, that Obama's foreign policy is actually extremely Kissingerian. Uh, it's realist, and the realism comes from recognizing the limits of American power, uh, perhaps too much, perhaps to, to the... Uh, one thing is to kind of know thyself, and another thing is to tell the whole world <laughs> just how limited uh, the power is. Um, but I think that's what's guided it more than lack of strategy. However, I think it is true that there's more than ambivalence, I think there's a lack of imagination in American foreign policy. I'll give one example, and I think it is a very worrying example. Uh, you know, what kind of U.S. intervention can there be? A U.S. intervention, as Hector said, is not necessarily Marines. If you look at what's... One of, the, one of the tendencies that worries me a lot in Latin America is the uh, introduction in recent years of media uh, owned by foreign, not-so-friendly powers like Iran and Russia in Spanish. Iran has Hispan TV and Russia has RT in Spanish. And their editorial lines are uh, appalling. But, I mean, at least RT people know it's got an R in it. People know it is Russian. Hispan TV, most people don't know is Iranian. Um, and they, they're funding um, a, certain, a certain editorial line which, uh, aside from being anti-American, fine, I mean, you know, a lot of people are anti-American. But, but uh, and aside from being leftist, and, you know, for all, for, all, for all that we say, well, we don't know what's left and right anymore, I mean, watch, watch Hispan TV, you'll know what's left. Um, <laughs> but I think that's very worrying. And basically what, that, what I'm getting at is that there's a kind of soft power that the United States could use. Now, they would say, these other, the other side would say, well, you know, the United States has, the United States has CNN, it's, got, it's, it's already got it, CNN Espanol, and there's all sorts of, uh, media um, controlled or owned by American interests and in broadcasting to Latin America. 
but but none of them have the kind of but you know they're for the most part for the most part fairly uh, responsible and 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 unbiased. I mean, I would be surprised if you spoke to a journalist from CNN. I don't know if there's any journalists here, but if you spoke to a journalist from CNN and said, you know, we want you to toe the Obama foreign policy line, I, I can imagine what the response would be. Well, you know, Hispan TV and RT do that. And, and really, it's very regarding a series of issues that are really inflammatory, at least in the Chilean case, regarding the indigenous issues, regarding students. I think the United States has to watch out um, that it does not leave certain spaces uh, unoccupied. China's coming in in other areas, not so much in the media side, but I think that that's one area where I would agree with Hector that foreign policy uh, is, is, is a problem. Now, the further point, which I did not mention in my presentation, which is true in Chile, it's, I think, true, true in Argentina to some degree. For all the progress that we've made with democratization in Latin America, uh, one area that has not improved an awful lot is the strength and institutionalization of political parties, right? And there were a few countries where, that had strong party systems. One of them was Chile, and one of them to some degree was Argentina. It was one party, but it had a strong party system. Uh, two parties. Um, in both those cases, and, so, and then we have countries which for a long time have not had strong parties like Peru. Um, and what's worrying is that we, what we're seeing, because of many of the phenomena that I highlighted, uh, a kind of erosion of the party system uh, that we're not really sure with what it will be replaced. And I think that's something to watch out for in terms of, that doesn't bode well for, for, for political stability in the future. Just those two points. Uh, I should mention that uh, Costa Rica has a good party system, and it's been there for a long, long time. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to make that little. Good point. Uh, any questions? Any observations? Yes, sir? Yeah. Ed Meyer, Cordero, World Docs. Uh, didn't uh, a majority of the members of the OAS recently sign a statement or pass a resolution criticizing Secretary Almargo for exceeding his authority? Uh, well, that, that's, that was the in commission. That was the, that was the initiative. What was voted was a different, completely different text. What was voted is that the Venezuelan delegation had made a, a proposal to discuss in the Permanent Council uh, certain decisions by the Secretary General that exceeded uh, his institutional obligations. Uh, and the vote was on that text. The vote wasn't on, the vote was the, on the right of Venezuela to discuss, to bring to the Permanent Council, it was a redundant vote because every state member has the right to bring to Permanent Council anything they want, but it was a way to translate that into that sort of electoral victory uh, when they went out to the press after the session, the the foreign minister, Venezuelan foreign minister, said we had a tremendous victory uh, censoring 
the Secretary General, etc., etc., etc. That was the, the exact sequence of events. Moreover, in the initial proposal, Venezuela, Ecuador, Nicaragua, and Bolivia had proposed to vote to ask for the resignation of the Secretary General. And they didn't have the votes for that, certainly. So they, they backtracked and they came up with this formula. That was redundantly, uh, a, a redundant vote. Uh, now, a more interesting vote, I have to say, is that uh, in the last session of the Permanent Council to discuss the, the document of Venezuela that Almagro had produced, uh, the session started with the, the Venezuelan delegation proposing to eliminate the agenda, to, to knock down the agenda altogether, to reject la orden del día, as it goes. Uh, and that was a vote that they lost. Uh, and uh, it's the first time they lost a vote at the OAS since Chavez. Apropos change of cycle. The U.S. has primarily engaged with um, the governments of Latin American countries, and I'm curious, beyond the media example, how can the U.S. build relationships with the people themselves to facilitate or encourage political change in Latin America? People. You live in the South. I don't. The people. Um, I think there's a lot to be done, and I'm you know, always attending these Fourth of July parties at the American Embassy, uh, and you observe who's there. And uh, I think the, the United States actually does a fairly decent job of engaging with civil society. Uh, they're very involved with, um, you know, they try to engage with with women's groups, with groups of sexual diversity, with environment groups. I mean, if you look at, I'm just looking at what I see, what I, who I see at a party. This is extremely scientific, um, but but I do get the sense that the United States is worried about reaching out to civil society. Um, lo a lot of that involves money. I mean, it's not just inviting them to Fourth of July. Uh, which, by the way, was catered by McDonald's, which I thought was very odd. But anyways, um, <laughs> the, it's not just, uh, you know, you, you need to fund projects. And, but, but there's different kinds of projects. I mean, this is what I say, I said earlier, for, you know, for a long time, relations with countries like Chile were geared towards trade and investment and so on. And, and that's important, and that's there, and it's working. Uh, there's a second tier or third level uh, or second or third level relations which I think have to do with this kind of you know ex exporting expertise exp exporting society exporting an idea um, which went out of fashion you know after the after the 1960s and 70s but it, I think it's important and I think there's certain idea that has to do with with and it's the idea of liberal democracy at the end of the day right it's the idea of if you're going to fund women's groups uh, you, if you choose the groups in civil society that you're going to fund, you're giving certain signals regarding what you support as a country and what your ideals are. And I think that uh, it, it does a fairly good job of that, but maybe it needs to communicate it a bit better. 
Funk, I was very interested in your comment. I would appreciate that uh, when asking a question to identify yourselves oh, uh, and uh, the affiliation also. Which Mark, Mark Naturno, uh, Interactivity Foundation. I was very interested in your remarks about um, capitalism and competition. The Latin Americans don't are not opposed to capitalism; they want competition. And uh, I'm, I was, and in your remarks about inequality, inequality, and I'm wondering um, whether you find that there is any type of a, a Latin American version of. Uh, political correctness, like the sort that we see on our campuses and in our media, and that seems to have fueled uh, a lot of the anger um, that many Americans are uh, feeling about our political establishment. Do you find that there's something like that in Latin America, in Chile, in Argentina? And if so, uh, what is it like? And uh, how do you think that it has affected of the politics there? Oh, um, Two points. I'll get to the political correctness thing in a minute. But regarding competition, blueberries. If you buy blueberries here at a certain time of year, chances are good they come from Chile. If you buy blueberries in Chile at the same time of year, which is summer there, so think about carbon footprint, right? Think about how long they had to travel to come to Whole Foods and how long they had to travel to get to the Jumbo down the street from my house. Uh, I took a picture, I should, I should, that's a picture I should put on here one day. A little thing of 125 grams of blueberries costs roughly, it ranges, but it can cost between five and six dollars. 125 grams. Uh, they're much more expensive in Chile than they are here, and they have to travel far less. Um, why is that? Why is that? Lack of competition. There are two main supermarket chains, and everybody knows that there is price collusion. One of the when I talk about corruption, one of the big issues is actually there's the issue of political corruption. One of the big issues has been price collusion, and there have already been some high-profile cases. And when you talk about the high-profile cases, and it sounds ridiculous, but chicken and toilet paper, the two main companies that produce the two main pulp and paper companies, were colluding over the price of toilet paper. Uh, you know, it's, it's cheaper to shop for groceries, much cheaper to shop for groceries here than it is in Chile. And there's no reason for that aside from the lack of competition. So, and people know that. People know that, right? So uh, the, the argument that the market's too small, you know, which is the traditional market, the traditional argument you get from companies in Chile, that the market's small, so not enough people buy blueberries. Books, books, books are very expensive in Chile. Why, amongst other things, because they charge value-added tax. If you go to Brazil, you don't pay value-added tax on show. Many other countries don't charge tax. So there's many examples like that. So people know that, and that's why they want more competition. Um, yes, there is political correctness. There was a there was a BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement is becoming active. We, there was just a case at the University of Chile where uh, they tried to boycott the presence of the Israeli ambassador uh, to give a talk at the Faculty of, Edu uh, Faculty of Law. Finally, he did speak because the university, for the most part, which is the case in most areas in the world, where the students kind of try to stop things and the university says, well, this is free speech and it's an academic debate and so on. Um, that's one case. For the most part, on the part of the, the, the left, there is, um, uh, for example, uh, even students in my faculty will, will be... Will, 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 uh, 
become quite uh, animated if you uh, I'll give, give you an example. I and some colleagues of mine at the University of Chile and often in our teaching evaluations well, we'll get comments saying the professor uses the United States too often as an example, as a case study. Or uh, there's a lack of diversity in theoretical approaches regarding, um, you know, basically the theoretical approaches, the authors we use tend to be too, too not alternative enough. Things like that. So that's beginning to be, but it's nowhere near the levels that, that, that we have here. Partly because we also have a long way to go on the other side, right? We still need to have much more, and this has to be said, we're much, there's still a, a lack of respect in terms of, of interaction and language and so on regarding women and sexual minorities and, and racial minorities and, and class and religion and so on. So there's a kind of political correctness, but we have a long way to go still before we can go to, get, go to the other extreme. Yeah. No, that's okay. Get more. Um, the lady in green... Green. No, with the Interactivity Foundation, thank you very much for your comments. I have a question to both um, speakers. Uh, it's in regards to Argentina, could you please expand on your comments? Um, you said you talked a little bit about erosion of party system in Argentina, and also uh, you said that Argentina is going through a regime change. I wonder what you meant by that. Thank you. Wait, well, I just, you know, if you look at the traditional main parties were the Peronist Party and the Radical Party, the Peronist Party, we're not really sure what's going to happen there. Uh, there's some sort of internal struggle going on. And the Radical Party has has uh, teamed up with this right, left, center, up, down candidate, uh, president. Um, so, the, the, and, and what does he represent? You know, what is this new coalition? That, that's... That it's a new thing in the, I mean, the radical party really a long time ago lost its, its traditional role in the party system. And, and Peronism got sort of taken over by Kirchnerism. Uh, so we don't really know what was going to happen with Kirchnerism. She was in court yesterday, I believe. Uh, and, uh, so we don't know. The traditional two by party system in Argentina seems to be changing. Whether that's a, a change to the party system or regime change, I leave that to Hector. Uh, well, let, let me add a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, political parties are in trouble uh, wherever you go. Uh, the idea of a political party is, is gone. People don't like political parties. You go to every poll you can get your hands on about ranking social institutions, uh, parties come to the very end, to the very bottom of the list. Uh, police institutions, religious institutions, you name it, rank before in terms of social prestige, higher than political parties. Parties are in trouble everywhere. Parties are in trouble in this country, one of them in particular, as, as we know. Uh, so uh, we need to figure out, at the same time, no parties, no democracy. But well, we need to figure out that uh, that, that equation needs needs a resolution, uh, either through a different type of organization, either through a different type of party organization, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, how bad the party system is in Argentina? Well, I I don't know. I don't think it's that bad. Or a couple of things also are 
political parties. I praise uh, strongly Peru's uh, political stability and very handsome recognition uh, concession and so on and so forth. Well, Peru has no party system, for example. <laughs> Peru has, you know, parties last for as long as the presidential term lasts. Uh, Toledo's presidency, Fujimori's presidency, you name it. APRA is the only party that still exists, but, you know, uh, we'll see what APRA will do post Alan Garcia, I mean, when Alan Garcia retired from politics and so on and so forth. So, maybe we don't need parties. We need something else. Now, what's going on in Argentina? Well, in terms of the party system, well, something interesting. Macri is the first president in a century that is not a Peronist, not a radical, and not a military. <laughs> That's quite a change. Uh, whether that is that a new party is here to stay or whether that party will be a Peruvian party and then it's going to be a four-year or an eight-year or whatever, and then it, it will disappear, and then there will be another Peronist, well, perhaps, uh, but uh, Peronism loses elections now. I mean, and not only now. Peronism lost elections many, many times. <laughs> this is, so that, with regards to a, the beginning of a potential important transformation in the party system. The Radical Party is partner in a coalition, but as a weak partner, it was in government in '99. The, the La Rua, but the Radical Party was uh, the, the big partner, the strong partner of that coalition. Now it's the minor partner in the coalition. We'll see. It's, it's, a, it's all new. I also think, uh, when I say it's a regime change, uh, I, I wrote something two weeks ago. My column was on this in Pais. It's never, ever happened. It, there's always been corruption in Argentina and elsewhere. In, in Latin America, in the world, there's always been corruption. Uh, corruption in Latin America, to a large degree, because of the extraordinary inflow of foreign exchange having to do with the commodity boom, uh, has taken a dramatically different quantitative uh, dimension, which translated into a different qualitative dimension. Uh, Argentina, and not only Argentina, has had, uh, I, I've, I've called corruption a number of times as a political regime, as a system of domination. Uh, that to a great extent substitutes for weak parties and weakens parties even more, interestingly enough. Corruption, the, the, the networks of corruption have become power structures that control the state, that have captured in, in a number of countries, have capture the state. Argentina comes out now out of 12 years, the longest government ever, consecutive 12 years, of a husband and wife that also attempted to stay longer. I mean, now people, since people have very short memory in Argentina, nobody remembers that only two or three years ago, his, uh, Christina Kirchner's uh, supporters used to say, uh, Christina Eterna. Uh, uh, and the idea was to reform the Constitution and pack, pack the Consejo de la Magistratura, the, 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 the institution that appoints judges, uh, going in the direction of a third term, uh, and didn't go anywhere. 
partly because in 2013, the official party lost the midterm election and then didn't have enough seats to, pro to produce that. Uh, so in that sense, it's something, something very interesting is going on. Uh, the people who work on security, anti-corruption, and so on and so forth, find uh, that the state apparatus has been captured by corruption rings. It's not anymore what used to be, well, some sort of, you know, official in a public agency uh, paying, uh, adding a 20% to, to an invoice. It's, 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 not, it's not anymore a, a method of uh, quick, making quick uh, fortune, fortunes. It's a system of domination with territorial control, with uh, selection of leaders, and of course with, with the financing of campaigns that, that determines the, the political outcome itself. And oftentimes bypassing the traditional party structures. To a great extent, uh, that is the core of the Brazilian crisis as, as a system of institutionalized corruption, not for a person, not for a presidential couple, not for a family, say Nicaragua, but for a political party, the PT, which attempted to, as we say in the literature, well, the, the, the preization of PT in Brazil, the sort of that party that uh, it was a hegemonic party in power for 70 something years until 2000, right? Now in power again, but in a competitive system, a different type of regime. And in that sense, the kinds of challenges the, that, that political society faces amount to a regime change, to a political transition, a, a regime transition. How to extricate all these uh, networks from state apparatus, which means from power. Uh, and it's tough. I mean, yeah, Christina Kirchner is in court. Uh, People go to jail. Monies are, uh, you know, found in uh, monasteries and you know, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, that's that's what it is. And and all these people who are already in jail point in the direction of the key cabinet members of Nestor and Cristina Kirchner. Uh, by the way, whoever is in jail now were second second in the line of command of key ministers of the previous governments. So. It's a, it's a metaphor, but it's more than a metaphor in, in many ways. One last question, and we go to the right this time. Uh, yeah, you 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 were asking for to ask a question before, please. Uh, Gerald Chandler of iTech Consultants. Uh, do you think that there'll be a continuing trend to uh, integration between uh, the U.S. and Central America and Mexico, both ways? We have so many Americans retiring to those countries and so many people who have family histories from those countries. Do you think that will develop so far that uh, we'll have effective integration between the countries? Oh, and I may add, and, and Mexicans retiring in Mexico which is the explanation for the immigration flow that uh, candidate Trump doesn't know, obviously. The, well, the, the flow has been negative. More Mexicans have gone back to Mexico than Mexicans coming to the US. 
legally, illegally, any, any way you want. For the most part, because there's a whole generation of Mexicans in the U.S. that uh, re with retirement, uh, they go back to Mexico with their Social Security checks. More bang for the buck, as they say. Um, yeah, and also add, I would say, Pacific Alliance. Well, we haven't talked much about Pacific Alliance, who is the, 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 the new club that everyone's, everyone wants to be a member of now, and uh, including Argentina. And, uh, and also where, where the U.S. has played, uh, well, that's, that's a trade integration, but, uh, but also speaks to, well, also that is, you know, on the, uh, there you have another example where the, where the administration has had a tremendously active role in the Pacific Alliance. And uh, I should, therefore, part of this, you know, contrast. In I think it's interesting. The Pacific Alliance is a good example of how integration is changing, right? If you, th if you compare the meeting we had in Chile last week, uh, which was a pretty good success, and the kinds of agreements that were reached. I mean, the Pacific Alliance, the genius of the Pacific Alliance is kind of it's more bottom-up than top-down in small steps. So some of the agreements were about sort of benefits to companies that integrate themselves within countries. For example, the mobile phone company, Glado, announced that it would not charge roaming fees with, within between countries of the Pacific Alliance. Um, so I think you know if you compare that to the grand announcements of the early of the late ninth or mid nineteen hundreds or early nineteen hundreds, uh, early nineteen nineties of the three amigos and the four amigos and free trade from Alaska to Patagonia and all these wonderful things which which never materialized. The Pacific Alliance is really a new way of looking at. It. I think we should. I'm happy to come back in six months and talk about the Pacific Alliance. But the um, the. Uh, it's it's changing the way. First of all, it's changing the way of that integration works. Secondly, the Pacific Alliance had a clear ideological when it was founded, a clear ideological motivation, which was to counterbalance the the sort of Bolivarian type of integration. It's been interesting to watch Michel Bachelet and Heraldo Munoz try to peg the, the the round peg in a square hole because they don't really feel part of that project, and yet they are. Clearly, integrationists, and and and, uh, and particularly, they, they've had Eraldo Munoz has had the idea of of emphasizing Chile's relations with Latin America, and the Pacific Alliance is part of that. Counterbalancing that has been Argentina and Brazil, which were looked at this and said, "Oh my goodness, what's happening? We're, we're being left out." Argentina is now participating more. Brazil has other problems at the moment. Um, but I think what's interesting about all that is that if you look at the world, and clearly the world is going in the direction in the opposite direction. Um, and people are worried about uh, well, the European Union, of course, but also TPP and other things, and people are looking inward. The model of the Pacific Alliance of how it's progressing in terms of integration is, will be probably more relevant and more important. It is. Well, everything has to come to an end, I guess. Uh, we thank you very much uh, for having been with us this afternoon. Uh, we'll keep you posted on uh, on the following, following events, and um, I will suggest that we give a round of applause to our magnificent. <laughs>